Aloha and welcome to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Native Stories is pleased to introduce you to Connie Flores, producer of many influential films such as Kekuleana Hemahu, Waiki Ki, and Kumuhina. My name is Connie Flores. Middle name Marie after my grandmother. Classic Portuguese grandmother. <laughs> so Connie Marie Flores, I'm a producer. I'm also a director, but my passion area is in producing. There's a need in Hawaii for that. So I really stick to something that I can support stories and, and to be able to facilitate and carry those stories. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners about where you grew up? I grew up on, in Hilo, actually. I grew up in Hilo. My mom is born and raised from Ocala. <laughs> and my father is actually from San Antonio, Texas. My father is oh, three quarters Native American Indian and a quarter Spanish from Spain. So that's where my grandparents on my father's side from. And he was in the Air Force, in the military. And that's how he met my mom, was in the military. And of course, in Hilo, every woman wants, every young girl at 16, 17, 18 years old after Pearl Harbor wants to marry a military man. It's so funny. <laughs> and so they had seven of us. And we, you know, moved around a little bit. But where we ended up was mom didn't, you know, they, between Hawaii and Texas, we ended up in Fairfield, California. And we became members of, the, of our own Hawaiian club that was there in the community, which is a lot, as you know, the second largest demographics of Pacific Islanders is in the Bay Area. So that's the Bay Area. Fairfield is where my brothers live today, who used to live in Hilo and moved their families from Hilo. Hilo is where we go every summer from the time I was, oh my God. I was a month old when I was born and I was with my grandmother literally a month later because I was the firstborn girl out of my grandparents' side of the family. So I was named after my grandmother. So my summers were with my grandparents and the homestead and I actually have old eight millimeter footage of the homestead that we still have today, that we still caretake today in Ocala, which is right there near La Pohoyhoy. Yeah. So a lot of family lineage. Um, matter of fact, I just came back from Fairfield. Uh, my mom passed several years ago, and I thought our genealogy was like this, and it's like this, because my brother and I have been a big part of more and more. And so I have cousins like um, Leo Anderson Akana. So she's my first cousin. So I'm like, she's like, I don't have all of that. Can you, and I was like, you know what? I'm flying over there. That's another story that I'm working on with her. She has, she's an amazing screenwriter. And so I digitized everything so that I could print it here because I'm not going to carry this around. <laughs> to carry here to have for my, that whole Anderson family, the Hawaiian side, mm -hmm. and the Akana family so they know where all their roots are because the work is already done. It's, it's just amazing. You know, and some folks, they always believe that I'm Hawaiian and I'm like, I'm not Hawaiian, but I'm like six generations here. And Kume Aloha was probably one of those sisters to me that was like, you know, and even my kumu, Edith McKenzie, was like, it's in here. It's in your heart, in your soul. And that's where you carry that. And so you're, as an indigenous woman, and I identify as an indigenous filmmaker, I think that's probably the most important part. Because when I'm in New Zealand, I connect with those in New Zealand and the Maori culture as well. Or when I'm in Tonga, I'm connecting with the, yes, it's the royal family, but they talk about their roots and where they're from. But it really it becomes about indigenous people or people of color. I just feel like my calling is in the Native Hawaiian community. Who Connie is as a filmmaker and a storyteller. 
So any other upcoming documentaries? I have several projects. So the Glades project I've worked on, and still, it's funny, the girls, the girls, the Mahoos in the community here and in the Bay Area and in LA, follow up with me pretty regularly to find out where it's at. And I'm like, still grant writing, still looking for funding. So the Glades project is always going, as you know. I never mm -hmm. stop on it. It's, I feel like it's my, everybody has a passion project. It's my passion project. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> Kumuhina was an important project, you know, and it's still going. And then we did a short off of the Kumuhina, and that is doing very well, somewhere in the middle. So that has gone out to every school in the entire nation for education. The Ford Foundation funded it so that it can be in every library, in every, every school in the entire nation from K through 12. Um, I've done presentations of Kekulana Hemahu at NYU, at Columbia University, in LA, so different places. And they still ask to this day for a presentation and a Q&A talk with. You're hearing it for the first time on a public level uh, called Firebrand. And uh, I smile already because I'm excited about it, but it's about Ko'olau, the leper. So a lot of folks know that story from a book that James Michener wrote, or that uh, was it Michener? No, it was another writer from many years ago. And he got the information secondhand, and then he wrote a book on it, so it's very fictional. But on this, we're going literally to the families from the west side of Kauai, their feedback, their stories, and telling it in a very organic, independent, film way, and then at the same time building a team of consultants, Native Hawaiian consultants that work with them to make sure that it's authentic. And I love it when the writer-directors have already done that legwork and where I can support it more so. Puake and Nogelmeyer, you know, like present it to him, have him review it, have him give his blessings on that after he reads it, and then also getting feedback from him, which was invaluable for the writer-director on how he's going to direct that so that, it's con so that the content of those speakers are literally learning from uh, not just the native tongue of native Hawaiian language. As we know, every community has a different dialect. So in Kauai on the west side, you have the Nihau. So you have a different dialect. So we're really paying attention to those finest areas that are important to the story. Some people ask, well, what's the difference between that movie and a Hollywood movie? Well, there's the difference. If it was a Hollywood movie, they wouldn't even look at that. They would probably have a, a Mexican play, <laughs> a Hawaiian, or you know what I mean? Or a Tongan play, a Hawaiian. And, and maybe that's a good actor, but are they Tongan and raised and no Hawaiian language here? There's, you know, all those differences, right? Or a Samoan wrestler playing Kamehameha the first. Yes. <laughs> and there, there's many contexts on that with him because he's here, lived here, you know, raised up here. And, and then, of course, you know, knowing this in Hawaiian history, where do the Hawaiians come from? So that's where the Samoans come from, right? Well, Micronesian islands coming through. So, so really, we're all Pacific Islanders coming forth. So there's that context of that. And then we went to LA and met up with people that are born and raised from Hawaii that are Native Hawaiian casting for Ko'olau. That was the hardest character to find. And we found a very strong character role for that that's half Indian and half Hawaiian from born and raised from Hawaii that's a very good actor. So another story that um, I'm on and it's even bigger budget is um, a story about Harriet Balslog. So the ILWU during the 40s when they were starting to union organize and remember they had the Bloody Monday that happened on the on the because you got to remember, now we're talking about all ethnicities, not just Native Hawaiian, trying to get rights for the work environment, labor, labor organizing. So in that context, 
she was the lawyer that was working for the ILWU. She's originally from, I think it was Indiana or Ohio, I can't remember, top of my head. But from there, law school, the first woman to graduate from law school. Come to Hawaii, uh, they met her in DC, she was clerking came to Hawaii and she was one of the first lawyers here. Not the first, but one of the first. And it's, at that time, it's just, that just doesn't happen. Why not be a housewife or a secretary? That was your two options, right? Um, so she was hired to handle those cases. She got off over 200 of those folks that were in the jails for six months to a year for striking. And when they were striking, they weren't given their jobs to go back to. Because you were on strike, they just fired you and you were gone. You had no labor laws. You got to remember that this, this isn't a state at the time. This is a territory. So you got the big five who are in charge of everything. So the big five pretty much had an iron hand on everything. Uh, I had the writer-director come over from L.A., to, you know, so she was here and we, we all met. She's fantastic. She's a writer-director for Disney, ABC, you know, total union. She's on the Directors Guild, the whole thing. <laughs> and um, so, uh, but she got her blessings from Harriet's husband before he passed on the script. Because that was the questions I asked writer-directors. Did you get your blessings from such and such? Did you get the blessing from on Firebrand? Who was your consultant and who was the blessing from? Was it? And, and then he gave me his background. I go, perfect. Because he's from the Kauai West Side and he knows the families and he's from UH languages for the uh, Hawaiian language and knows the dialect and he got the blessing on that and knows the story. So those are. Those are factors that I believe are very important, telling the story, rather than just going ahead. L if it was LA, they would just probably, I mean like Hollywood, they'll read a book and they want to make a movie on it and it's animated because it's marketable. Very, very different. A different purpose. It becomes a product. And they're all products, but it really becomes a commercial product. Big difference, really big difference. So those are just a couple of different projects, but there's, I have a lot. I mean, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, I must get one or two or three different ones now. And I kind of look at it and go, mm, it's not where my passion is. My passion is, like yours, Native Voices. Mine is Hawaii stories from Hawaii about our stories here and to articulate that. Kumuhina is a good example. Kekulana he mahu, remembering a sense of place, is that. Remembering a sense of place has become almost commercial in some ways since that film. It's crazy how that happens. Knowing your sense of place of where you're from or who you are as a person. But it was uh, Hina who gave that title. Because on the mainland they're like, you one or two words have it start with an A, you know, all the basics of, of marketing. And I was like, no, she gave that title. We're going to keep that title because it embodies what that film is. How did you first get interested in filmmaking? Um, I loved the arts growing up. And I, I think it was two years of fine arts right out of high school. I played volleyball and I was on the mainland for a year and a half, two years, and I went to school. And then I moved to Honolulu with a company. It was a pizza company. And then I, I changed careers. I went into, I just wanted to do the business side of it. And I played badminton. I had yeah, high school over there all the time. I was like the number one in California, number one there, played here, got first place, number one in the state. So I was a total jock. And I did a lot of business things. I worked for a company called Eves and Meredith. Then I thought it was engineering that I was going towards. I have a brain, I can work. I understand how this works. Um, and it was funny, the plantations were all still going then. Isn't that crazy? I remember that time period. Um, and then I went back to school 
And my schooling was paid for with UPS. And uh, engineering, thinking it was engineering. All the while loving going to the kumukahua, you know, the, the independent playwrights, the arts, and supporting that. Uh, in 1990, becoming more involved with the gay and lesbian community. Um, and then in 95, that's really when things changed for me. In 1990, I started participating in watching the Hawaii International Film Fest. At that time, they'd only been going just a couple of years. But I was loving it. I felt like every time I went to the movies, I was in a different country. And I wanted to explore that country. You know how most people go to Europe first? You know where I wanted to go? South Pacific, <laughs> Southeast Asia, because of that film festival. And that's where I did go. And, um, and I got to a crossroads. Um, I was already in my junior year. And I went to Cambodia and Thailand and all that. And I was like, do I do the arts? Do I go into film? Or do I stick with what I'm doing? And my mom's health was poor at that time. And, um, and my mom was an artist in her own way, but just never honored it. And that was probably the big thrust for me, was go in that direction. If, if I never did it, I want to see you pursue, I want you to pursue it with the same passion. And, Honestly, that's what really changed, and that's where Keikulana Hemahu came in. I was already, because I already knew business, I was successful at it, so I was with the Honolulu, it became the Honolulu Rainbow Film Fest. It was the Honolulu Gay and Lesbian Cultural Foundation, so I worked with Chuck Bowler, who was the executive director for HIF, Hawaii International Film Fest, and we were able to get our 501c3, not without hardship because they weren't giving those out for LGBT communities in the middle 90s. You got to remember what it was like at that time, but we were able to stay on top of it and within a year we got it through and then we started setting up. Speaking of uh, Keikulana Himahu, remembering mm -hmm. a sense of place, how was the overall reception of the documentary within first the Native Hawaiian community, and then with the local community here? At that point, I'd already taken Native Hawaiian uh, languages. My kumu at the time was Edith McKenzie. Uh, I had already known uh, Kumelo Gomes. It was such an important time. You also have to remember the same-sex marriage thing that happened in 98, the vote. That same year was the same year that the tragedy of Matthew Shepard. I would have this dream constantly, and I remember sharing it with my kumu, that I'm standing, sitting around in a campfire. My kumu's at the campfire. They're all talking Hawaiian language. I'm not a fluent person at it, but I understand it. And she would, and I remember her getting up and telling me, you know, it's not whether you can speak it fluently, it's whether you can know it in your heart and understand it because you hear it with your soul, with your heart. Your heart is where it's at. And she would always tell me that because academically I can write down and then in my final year, it's just like ace, ace it. You know, you're doing all the literary side. Academically, I could do that. Um, and she would tell me stories about mahus from what she knew in the newspapers. You gotta remember, she just started at that point to translate those stacks of newspapers from the 1800s. There were like five people doing that, right? So in those newspapers were stories about mahus. So there were different stories. So I knew who some of those folks were that were working on that. So I went to those particular people like Kimo Alama, Keolana, to tell some of those stories that he knew of in that context that were written by Native Hawaiians to tell that story. So it started out with one, it, you start with one person and you move forward. So when it came to the point of people hearing about, we're talking about mahus, the sovereignty movement still happening, those particular people that we interviewed became 
a foundation of support for the project in order to tell the story so that when we had a screening because people were worried about is it going to damage our sovereignty movement talking about mahus or lgbt um, then we we don't want we don't want to support it we don't want to support this project so by doing a private screening and having them there to speak their voice that for the first time these are the this is the truth about the importance of mahu being a very a part of the thread of the community of keeping it together in the native hawaiian community and it, that's the turning point that happened in that room at that time and through that it's just it slowly has changed you have to remember that even uh, you have the life foundation today uh, kale Amamo used to be another oha had their own offices for aids awareness and education. You know who was running that office? All the mahus. When we asked them to talk on camera, they were told that they could not speak their voice about being mahu or their experiences because they are working for a nonprofit organization and representing OHA. They were in a rock and a hard spot. They broke off and started their own nonprofit organization those same girls to, for AIDS and getting the girls out of, from the prisons to the streets and getting them education. They did amazing work. And that's the first time you heard the word mahuahine. They adopted that. They penned it that at that very point. That was all happening at the same time we were making this film in that very end part. Yeah, when you're speaking about Edith uh, McKenzie mm -hmm. and to Edith, just full disclosure, uh, she is my, she was, my grandmother's halal sister, and she was also the goddaughter to all my nieces and nephews. Oh. Grandmother, excuse me, to all my nieces and nephews. When I was growing up in Papukulea, uh, my grandmother spoke Hawaiian in the house, and she used to get copies of Hawaiian newspapers for me to read Yeah. from her. Yeah. So because Hawaiian is my first language, so, yeah, I'm just hearing you talking about her. And, and I know she was doing research on Mahu as right. well. Because um, I remember hearing the phrase, um, he vahi he mahu. Wherever there's a place, there's going to be a mahu. Just, it's no biggie. Right. <laughs> but yeah, we, but then my grandmother, she had a brother, and um, Georgie. And he was Mahu, he was a cross-dresser, and he lived in Waikiki. And my grandmother converted to Mormonism, and she raised all her children into Mormonism. And they became just very conservative. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know about Auntie Georgie until after this movie, after your movie mm -hmm. came out. Because I went to the showing at UH with my mother. And she was like, oh, you know, your uncle was like that. What uncle? I didn't know. We didn't talk about that. <laughs> and that's one of the important things about that project mm -hmm. was that it opened up dialogue yeah. within the community. And I know there was Kuumia Loha Gomes was also the head of Namamo. Yes. Which was the first Native Hawaiian LGBTQ organization. But that started... Oh, it, so many conversations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how much do you think has changed um, in terms of attitudes around LGBTQ issues from the time that um, Kekulana premiered in what, 2001? Yes. Until now. You got to remember, I was born in 1960. So I've seen the changes from... Mamo Street in Hilo to what I see in Hotel Street to, you know, over the years, the different things. Literally, the word was, it's not appropriate for public television. So we're trying to get funding, we're doing everything we can, and the funding circles that we got were small funders, but we made it work. We did a lot on our own, a lot. Um, 
when I first was writing even for the Glades Project, this was 2003, and I finally got some research and development funding. Some of those organizations are Astrea, Lesbian Justice Foundation, for Mahus, okay? So they're understanding the diversity. They're out of New York, but they're getting it, okay? So there's, there's these changes that are happening. But then I get into production and I get a private funding from a local Mahu. And then I keep moving forward and I'm like, okay, now I'm trying to get finishing funds. And they're like, well, they, you know, public television wants it told a certain way for the broader audience. And I'm like, I want to keep its authenticity to honor those girls, those mahouts from that time period. So I have to find that fine line. So today, yes, it's more accepted, but Kumuhina is probably a, one of the biz, biggest examples, I would say, right now. Um, when it showed at San Francisco, we had it as the closing night film here for Hawaii International. Sold out. It was great. It did fantastic. So much support and raised awareness, right? When it showed in San Francisco, we had it at the Castro Theater. Why that screening was so important was that we had uh, the decision from the national broadcast for PBS that was going to be present in two rows in that theater of 1,400 seats. Connie being Connie and knowing all the contacts from the Glades Project, I contacted all the Mahus that were living around the Bay Area and made sure they all had seats sitting directly behind them for the next two rows. So can you imagine a six-foot Mahu sitting behind you in all her elegance? And we made sure they came in early and sat behind them. But we had them sit all behind them in those two rows afterwards. When that screening was done, we had like a 10-minute standing ovation. I was just bawling, and the girls just loved it. But that two rows were supposed to make a decision. They said, we'll give you a decision in the next two weeks. The next two weeks was two months later. Because they were still, apparently, a lot of infighting within East Coast, you know, all the different broadcasters of where it was going to go. Because you have to remember, you have to, they're taking a chance on telling a story, a national broadcast, and where does national broadcast get their funding? Federal. So it's all out of D.C. So what's going on in the politics at that time? It's not Obama. <laughs> it's before that. So it's very conservative. So that's what we're dealing with. Okay, with Kumuhina, with... with Kekulana, and it really makes a difference on who is in office and what's getting funded. It's the reality of the producing side of things. They made that decision. Yes, it did go on the independent channel. Um, we did a lot of social media, literally everywhere it filmed. My job was to get all the, the contacts in community organizations. So we had places like Center for Asian American Media, the Transgender Law Center, all these organizations to email out. So very grassroots and a lot of PR and hoping people that are from Hawaii that are working in that San Francisco's vital because it's the second largest consortia of, or demographics of Pacific Islanders, so it became very important. So we had people coming up from San Jose, everywhere. And Kekulana was the same way. It was sold out two weeks before it was even there at Castro Theater. And when it was sold out ahead of time, so when my father's coming, my mom has already passed, she didn't see it, but when my father came and my brother was escorting him and he was there, I said, come an hour early. And he's coming and they're trying to scalp tickets from him this is in 2001. He was like, why are they trying to scalp tickets from me? What is going on? And I'm like, well, Dad, I know you don't understand what I do for work, but this is what I do. I just figure you come and you go to these cities just to meet people. I go, well, now you're going to see what I do. He cried from the beginning of the film all the way to the very end. And he couldn't believe that the, the rows, people were standing in the, row, in the hallways and everything. It was standing room only. 1,400 seats. Kumahina was the same way. Sold out 
ahead of time. So when we went national broadcast, we did everything. How has it changed? It's changed dramatically because on that, now we're talking community, now we're talking national, and then it became the number one documentary in the nation. And then the next thing you heard with the new Trump in office, and they were starting to review last year what was being passed. Who gets named in Congress on national television? Why are we funding projects like Kumuhina, transgender, and supporting this? We shouldn't be supporting PBS. Is this what they do? We shouldn't be supporting this. Why are we supporting? This is not family values. Now we're going back to where we were back in 98. We're talking, what is family values? Isn't it, you don't leave anybody behind? You know, so we've come a long way, but at the same time, we, it depends on who's in office and what's going on that we're always fighting that uphill battle. And it's happening now. And it's so funny because it went all over the, the Facebook. And Connie, did you see this? And here's, here's the thing. And they quoted what they said. And I was like, I have a dear friend that says, uh, bad press can be good press. And now more people know about Kumuhina. And they triggers it. And now it's on Netflix. After that is on Netflix. <laughs> so now more people are seeing it. So it's not a bad thing. And if that's what it's, if, I, if I'm getting under their skin, then it's working, you know? So it, we've come a long way, but the fight isn't over. It really isn't. Because I'm looking at the kids that are out there in the schools today, and it makes me want to cry. My own niece is going through it. I have a brother that's gay, he's been with his partner for 33 years, they got married, finally. Four kids. And she want, and she's my grandniece. And she wants to wear pink hair because she wants to be like pink. And she has two grandpas that are, that's her father's. And taunted in the hallways. She, does, she sees herself as a straight young girl at 15 years old. And yet she's taunted, yelling across the thing. You fuck, you this. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is here locally? This, this is in California, yeah. but I'm hearing about the stuff that's happening here and it's no different. Yeah. We have passed laws that are happening here in this state to protect our kids from bullying, but nobody's enforcing it. And the same thing is happening there in California. And I'm just like, what is going on? So we're still in a battle. So how would you define the term mahu? It's so funny. The Mahus call me Mahu. <laughs> and, I, and this is the old ones. <laughs> um, only you can define yourself of where you're at. But Mahu in the old context was the, as Kimo calls it, hermaphrodite. You know, the king of Maui, the last king of Maui, was hermaphrodite with Mahu. And that's talked about in that story in that storyline. Mahu today, or Mahu of the early 1900s, is you have one of the family members, male, that carries on the female role, and they're taking care of the family. So it's, it's changing all the time. I think it's always evolving and it's always changing with what's going on at the times. And you mentioned earlier about the Glades project. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that to our listeners? So my mom's like, jump in the car. I want to explain something to you. It's on a night, and we're going we're gonna to go downtown. So my sister and I jump in the car. We go down uh, to Mamo Street, and she goes, she's driving real slow, and I see, it's like yesterday, I see a tall woman walking with sequin, beautiful dress, and just walking and then notices us in Hawaiian. And, and I look up and my mom goes, look. And so we both look out the door and I'm like this in the window and I start giggling. Cause I'm a, I'm a kid, I'm giggling like. Next scene that mahu starts coming after us with the purse. <laughs> my mom goes around the corner and then she stops the car and says, I want you to know that that is a mahu. 
And Amahu is a man dressed as a woman, and they're not any different than you or I. They're just trying to make a living, and they're surviving. And you got to remember, Amahu's at that time, you didn't have any rights, and a large majority, yes, worked the streets. We're talking about the 60s now. So there was no shame about it. We had a discussion. This was 68, 69, 70, you know, all during this time period. You also have to remember that this is really the crux of the Glades Project. Yes, it's about the show lounge, but it's also about civil rights. And you have to remember there's a law that's in effect that went through our legislature on that first round of laws or second round of laws. In 1963, there was a law passed number 175, and it was called Intent to Deceive. So if you were a man dressed as a woman out in public, you could be arrested on the spot, and you could serve up to a year in jail, and it was a $1,000 fine. We're talking 1963, okay? We're also talking, you have to remember, knowing politics again, the first cabinets that went in that we had as governors, they were all Republicans. We were a Republican state before the whole Democrat part came in. So names that were on there are still alive today that were those that were voting on that and pushing that. That law was in effect and they thought it went through again in 68 to the legislature and they changed it a little bit but it was still the same law but more enforced and that stayed in effect till it was repealed in 73. So why does it become my passion project? It's the full circle of who I am and my identity, my community, and what was happening at the time. And more importantly, it's a story that needs to be remembered and not forgotten. And if we forget it, it will, history repeats itself. And we have seen that one over and over and over. Kalapapa is a good example with leprosy. What did they want to do when AIDS came around? Who stepped up? The community of Kalapapa went to DC to make sure that what happened with those AIDS clients that were here, because they wanted to ship them off to an island. Kalapapa people, the Hawaiian people, went to DC to make sure that that didn't happen again. I get goosebumps even talking about that. But history repeats itself, so it becomes very important for us to tell the stories and make sure they're not forgotten. The Glades Project is about those girls that survived during that time, and there were many murders because they were mahu, because of that oppression that happened at that time. So my journey has been going to the police department, researching that, finding those documents, finding out their birth name, their stage name, their street name, and what is their name today, because they've gone through so many identity changes to hide. That's what that project, that project has become about girls that even after the, the law was repealed, that oppression continued until Kei Kulana, that's how long it went, until they went away and they married. Their husbands didn't even know they were Mahu because they had gender reassignments. Some of them, Teresa is a good example. She's so out now. But when I put out a blitz that I was doing all these interviews, and had a small team I was working with that I was looking for the interviews of survivors from that time period. And it was like the coconut wireless going from here to New York to Chicago to those clubs and those places that people went off to and worked even in Alaska. That's where Teresa went, met her husband. And um, they went undercover and their families didn't, their husbands didn't even know. And so when the project started coming out that we're looking for interviews, that's when she felt she needed to come forward. At first she thought it might be off camera. I think I have one interview that's off camera because she's um, married to a well-known studio exec, has children, the children don't know, uh, is an author and a writer under a different name. Another woman I know is a painter, internationally known, married an oil man, 
undercover. You know, she, same thing, off camera, but hearing her story, tell her story for the very first time, what it was like, what they went through, and actually having people like Teresa come back, introduce her husband, now her husband knows. Of course he went back and was like, wait a sec, when you did this and this and this, was it because of this? She goes, yes. He goes, I never knew. <laughs> it was putting all the pieces together. But now she's reunited with her family with her husband in Maui. And it's just, if anything, it's brought families closer together, your ohana, which becomes very important to your support for your success, not as LGBT, but as family helping each other. So people go, why do you have to be out? Why do you have to, to out yourself in order to get support? Well, why can't, if I'm saying I'm straight and I just go out, okay, it's no big deal. But if I say I'm gay and I come out, it's a big deal. No, I'm just saying I'm gay and you're straight and why can't we all get along kind of thing. Because there was, there's two girls locally, they lived literally in Kalihi in the same community, a couple of blocks away. And one girl I worked with at UPS didn't even know that her brother, who is beautiful Mahu, for many years, didn't reconcile and get together with her family. And literally, they were living in the same community and reconnecting. And for the first time, her family had said to her, why did you, she goes, I didn't want to shame the family because of Mahu. But it was that stigma of that time that separates us, causes this divide. And we're talking within our own communities. And uh, it's, sa it's sad, but what I'm happy to see is families coming back. So a lot of those girls came back for that reunion and they hadn't seen their family in 30 years. They hadn't been home in 30 years. There's the twin sisters that are both Mahu and one had kid and hadn't been home and they came home. So film starting a dialogue, not just community, but within our families, starting a dialogue and reconciling and finding, finding their ohana at, at such a deep level that it goes beyond just, it's a movie. It's way beyond that. In talking about this time period, I think it's also important for listeners to make a correlation that when Mahu were being suppressed here in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. It was also the same time period that Hawaiian culture itself yes. was being suppressed. For example, um, the first piece of legislation against homosexuality was in the Penal Code. It was promulgated in 1868, yep. but it was not enforced until 1896 under right. the Republic of Hawaii. Right. So, yeah, there is a Correlation with that. Um, probate courts during the Hawaiian Kingdom also allowed the existence of iconic relationships mm -hmm. for inheritance, but that stopped when Hawaii became a territory. Yes, and you know who, when it became a territory, who put those laws in place? We know. Yeah. And so their, their faces are still at the state capitol. So with, yes, and at, when I was doing the research for the Glades Project, we went that far back because that law, the intent to deceive, went that far back. And I had to go to back the kingdom of- Back to the original of, jurisprudence, had, yeah. Because it all backtracks. And, and people say, no, the law's today. No, you, you don't take it for its face value. You need to do the further homework on it. How many people do that? That's the truth of it. Cowie Burgess even said it with the newspapers. There's only a handful. And she goes, and I really mean that. Three to five people, because of the dialects, the understanding, and the meaning of the context of Hawaiian language during the newspapers of the era and time it was written, compared to what it is. Your interpretation of what it might be today is different than what it was then. So, the laws of what they are in the 60s 
and what they, when you keep going back to 1930s, you go to the 40s, and then I kept going back to 18, yeah, 1896, and then going back further, and because they're it's all public information too, but you gotta know how to look for it. And I actually had to go back to the Supreme Court Library three times to find that and log all of that information. That also becomes the importance of the documentary because now that I have that, those records, because it's public information, it will also become a part of doing a podcast. It will become a part of a um, records or a website where people can go and interact on it and, and see the documents firsthand and making that available so they understand how far and how deep it went. The colonization, it goes all the way back to colonization. The colonization happened again in 59. Let's get real. The laws that came in 63 were from that second colonization. Let's get real. You can turn a blind eye and be ignorant to it, and I can say that word ignorant because that's the reality of it, but it was real. Colonization, a second phase, happened all through the 60s and 70s. And if you really do your homework, this is because this is what I do, because yes, I'm a filmmaker, but as a filmmaker and as a documentarian, I am researching all those different, who, who owned the properties on Hotel Street? I'm checking the tax records. I'm finding out who owns all, so I'm doing my research so that I am informed when I'm talking with someone. So the same thing goes with those, those, that information that was happening at that time. Yeah, it's just a lot. Uh, you mentioned another project, Firebrand. Yes. Uh, would you like to share a little bit about that? Firebrand, um, if you had this, your skin, let's say on your hands, because this is where it started with um, Koalau. If he had it on his hands and it started getting redness and it looked like it was eczema or something or a rash, it was automatically you were considered you have leprosy or you're a leper. And so literally you could be walking on the street and it was martial law during that time and you can have family, kids, you can be a little kid walking on the street and you're going home or something and they saw that automatically they could take you, put you on a ship, you go straight over to Kalapapa and you know what, your family doesn't even know what happened to you and the law doesn't even have to tell you that we've taken your son or your husband or your wife or your daughter and taken them or your grandparent and taken them. You have no rights whatsoever. Late 1800s, right before that whole overthrow, everything that's happening. You have absolutely no rights because everything's under martial law. So in this film, they're in Kauai. They're on the west side of the island, Kekaha. And Koalau takes it upon himself to realize that the only way decides that he's going to take his family because his young son is starting to have show signs of that. And they decided that they were going to go into Kalalau Valley. But what he did is he took his family in there to run away from the marshal at that time. And the marshal was just doing what he was told to do. And we got to remember, who controls everything at that time? The Big Five. The same Big Five, this is so funny, the same Big Five that I'm working on on that film project is the same Big Five, we're talking 1890, is the same Big Five from 1948. Different generation, but the same Big Five. You got no labor laws. You're gonna, we're gonna work you 16 hours a day and you're gonna be out in the beaten sun and that doesn't matter. We don't have to feed you. And we're, you're in poverty, we don't care. We need our sugar. The same big five as this over here is the sugar people again. And his wife is the one who tells the story in the end. She is the storyteller. So the, she is the heroine in this story. And we have an amazing actress that's playing that role. And she also played, 
I'm talking current day again, another film that I produced on recently that we just finished called Waikiki. And when we went to LA with this, to pitch this project, they were thinking so many other main actresses that would do this and we're like, no, we only have one. She is gonna be the only one and I'll show you her other works. Well, what, what makes you still think that it happened? Because they want to do it their L.A. way, right? And I'm like, this is who she is. This is what she's done. I can vouch for it. Well, Connie, if you can vouch for her, that's great. We know your decisions on that. But why? And so I have to pitch to have her be that, stay as that key role. And by the end of that pitch, and then finally when we brought her on the next trip, they were like, absolutely, there's no other person for this role. Speaks Hawaiian, Kamehameha School's grad. She's won numerous awards here in stage plays, Native Hawaiian community, and uh, she's, yeah. What advice would you give to particularly Native Hawaiians and other indigenous peoples who want to go into filmmaking? I always ask them to, you know, they, they want to go into filmmaking, keep their stories close to their heart, the other thing is when they write their stories and they're writing it, register it with the Writers Guild so that they keep the copyright uh, or writer, re register it with Congress, but the Writers Guild is easy. 20 bucks online, you get your writers, it's all copyright protected for eight to 10 years. That's so important because what happens is, and this has happened with another story, the story gets out there, they show it to people, the Hollywood folks, happens all the time, will pick it up, have their screenwriter rewrite it, and then the next thing you know, you're seeing it on the screen. And it's your story in so many different ways. And do you really have the funds to go sue that person to do that? No. You know, people say, I gotta get an agent, I gotta get, no. There's certain basics that you would do. Get involved with the Hawaii Filmmakers Collective is one of them, locally. Alelo does a lot of good things. They want to learn about filmmaking or producing. And Hawaii is like any other community, but even more so here. It's like one, one degree of separation, you know. It's, it's knowing each other and knowing who to work with and who not to work with. And then for Hawaii people, register them, connect with other Native Hawaiians within the community or locals that are in the film community. And there's a lot of us now, it's growing and it's gotten stronger over the last 10, 20 years. But right now is a perfect time because there's a lot of Hawaii stories being told locally. It's, it's an amazing time. It's a renaissance time period for storytelling in media, multimedia. Mahalo to Hawaii Council for the Humanities for sponsoring the production of this story. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name Our Native Stories. And check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www.nativestories.org. Also, stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on Android and Apple stores soon.